0: Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, June 16th, we're studying Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. A riot occurs in Ephesus over the preaching of Paul, who had been proclaiming Christ as the true God, not those Greek idols made by human hands. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Denzer. Pastor Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and Chaplain at the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Denzer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Great to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Denzer, let's talk a little context. We have the second part of Acts 19 today. What should we know about what Paul's been up to, the book of Acts, as we jump into the
1: text for today? Sure, we just started his third missionary journey, so three of three, uh, he tells everybody that he's really hoping that he's going to come back to them uh, and uh, spend a little more time next time he's through Ephesus, but he doesn't get a next time through Ephesus, as we know. Uh, but as we're going to hear right at the beginning, he's got his map kind of already planned out. He's going to eventually get back to Jerusalem, and then he wants to go on and see Rome, which is a not just a sightseeing tour, but uh, of course, everything happens in Rome. That's like saying... You know, I finally got to go to the head office at New York City or something. Uh, Mm. That's where all the action in the world happens. All roads lead to Rome. The phrase uh, is old. And so... Paul's looking forward to that. I don't know if he has in his mind at all the route by which he's going to take it. Of course, he's going to be on house arrest and kind of appeal the decision and be stubborn that way and follow his legal rights all the way to the Supreme Court, all the way to Caesar. Uh, and eventually he'll die there. And there's questions of where else he got before he died. Uh, but, but you can see Paul is already looking that far into the future of his path. Let's go ahead and take a look at those first two verses then. This is Acts
0: 19, just verses 21 and 22. Now after these events, these events being what happened with the sons of Sceva, those 12 disciples there in Ephesus, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So those first two verses there, uh, Pastor Denzer, as you said, lay out Paul's planned itinerary, Macedonia, Achaia, Jerusalem, Rome... Why I mean Rome, you mentioned a little bit. Why this order? What's what's going on with Paul here?
1: It, this is this whole story is very fascinating because we're going to get into Ephesus. We're going to get into the question of gods and false idols. And we're taking a whirlwind tour of the ancient world today. And we kind of have one foot in the new world, which is The Roman world and one foot in the old world, even going back before the old world, that's the Greek world. And that's really the kind of the the gap that Paul is standing with. He's he's in the east. He's in Asia right now. That's Turkey, modern day Turkey. But he wants to go to Macedonia, that's the northern part of Greece, you know, the fingery islands that reach down. He wants to go to Achaia, that's kind of the southern part, before you get off into the islands. And eventually he wants to get back to the west of that, to the boot, to Rome, right, to Italy. And so you have... You have really the whole ancient world, the whole Mediterranean kind of in view here. And Ephesus is kind of a city that, that looks over all of this too. It's, it's a major uh, port city that everything goes through. Um, so, so there's just a lot of activity going on. And, and Paul then is, is really trying to visit all the big cities of the ancient world here. So and then he mentions two of the helpers
0: here. Luke writes about Timothy and Erastus. We've met Timothy before. What about
1: Erastus? Uh, don't know much about him. Uh, it's possible that he's uh, mentioned in one other place too, uh, uh, but but uh, it could have been a common name too. So so difficult to know. He sends them on to. Uh, sends them on to Macedonia or Macedonia. So that's across kind of the channel there uh, and into Greece proper, what we'd recognize as Greece today on a map. And uh, and it's interesting. He calls them helpers. This is uh, – this is kind of a unnecessary detailed word. You know, the word deacon is is servant, helper. It's a very generic word in a lot of ways, but it's also a specific word sometimes used for the ministry. Uh here it's it's not just that word. It's not like farmer, it's like farming person. <laughs> which uh, which is a little strange, unnecessary, right? Uh, but, but So I'm not quite sure what it's trying to get at there, but probably just to say these are companions. These are people who are serving him in a variety of ways. They're not just uh, serving in the capacity as pastors or missionaries.
0: And we've, we've seen Paul traveling with other people. Uh, Timothy, again, before Erastus is the first mention of him. We've seen him traveling, though, with other people and sometimes parting ways for a time, then coming back together for a time, all in the service of the gospel in this case as you said timothy and erastus go to macedonia and paul despite all the travel plans that have been mentioned he's going to stay there in asia in ephesus for a little while uh, one, one thing that maybe before we move on from this section just the fact that in verse 21 paul resolves to do this in the spirit that i mean we've we've seen paul previously talk about when he was in ephesus the first time and didn't stay very long he said i will return if god wills We've seen Paul led very specifically by the Spirit for the first time in Acts chapter 16 into Macedonia through the, the vision that the Spirit sent. And here again, we see that, that same desire of Paul to be led according to the Spirit, according to to where he leads the gospel to go.
1: Yeah, I I think there's a couple ways we can take this. One, I think, is a caution to us is we're not the Apostle Paul. Uh, We shouldn't expect that visions or very clear words of God are going to be coming, you know, through in these kind of extraordinary ways. We look for God in his external word, in the Holy Scriptures, uh, in the clear preaching from his word. So it's not common among at least Lutherans, and I think it shouldn't really be common among Christians, to. to get in this potential problem where we confuse what I want to do with what God wants to do straight up it's very easy to do that just like i want to do this therefore god wants me to do this and the unnamed assumption is whatever i want must be what god wants that that we can't actually say in fact the lord teaches us to pray thy will be done in over and against our will and we recognize that we're of two minds very often. In fact, Paul is the one who taught that to us in Romans chapter seven, especially. So, uh, so we don't want to just say like anything a Christian wants to do is right. Uh, that's a recipe for disaster, or is you know inspired by the Holy Spirit as true and, and certain. That's that's also not correct. Uh, but Paul is trying to emphasize for sure, and this I think we ought to realize is the only way the Word of God gets around is by the Holy Spirit at work in the Word of God. And that goes even to its effectiveness. So, so yeah, we may have all sorts of intentions to do things, uh, to preach things, and to have my sermon or my message or my sharing of the gospel go off in this kind of a way. But that doesn't mean that it, it goes that way. It, it, it goes in the way that the Lord directs it. Uh, and our task is to speak that word honestly and truthfully.
0: So Paul has listed his travel plans. He's sent some of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia. He's going to stay in Ephesus for a time still, and that's where the text that we have before us takes place. We pick up again now in Acts 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis, and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against any anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. That is the rest of our text for today. That takes us through Acts 19, verse 41. Pastor Denzer, the way Luke introduces this account is by saying there was a little no little disturbance and it was concerning the way remind us of that name for Christianity the way
1: definitely actually I'd almost like to talk first about this no little uh, it's used twice and it's an understatement uh, uh, <laughs> uh, this this is uh, This is a a rhetorical device, and it alerted me right away that something kind of humorous or interesting uh, is going to be going on. And I think you hear a little bit of the rhetoric come back when the town clerk gets up and makes his case, which – i don't know if it really holds water we'll talk about that in a little bit but he's trying to calm down these people and in the middle of all this you know no little just a little disturbance right is this ridiculous riot where where even just the the mantra chant lasts for two hours uh <laughs> so you can see things go go nuts fast uh so no little disturbance is a bit of an understatement uh concerning That's the right. concerning the way though this is this is an early term for christianity uh probably connecting back to um probably connecting back to jesus statement right i am the way and the truth and the life uh and it's it's the same word that comes into our word synod uh for uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, actually, this hodos is the road, is the way. And so we're sun hodos, we're a synod, we're on the way together, we're we're gathered together uh, uh, in the same direction is the idea. Uh, uh, But but this is a term for Christianity. Uh, You hear this, uh, by the way, when Paul was first uh, on his orders to Damascus to see if he could find anybody who belonged to the way. And uh, and now I suppose it's been overshadowed by uh, the Star Wars, uh, Mandalorian, right? <laughs> this is the way. Well,
0: I don't know, Pastor Denzer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we I
1: think Christians had it first. So
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll we'll hold on to it. So we see that name yet again here in the Book of Acts. The no little disturbance, a bit of humor there from from the writer Luke concerning the way, and he introduces to us then Saint Luke introduces a man named Demetrius. He's a silversmith. And the reason he's important is because he makes silver shrines to Artemis and Artemis figures prominently in his speech, as well as in that chant of the crowd that comes up. And even in the, the clerk, he mentions Artemis as well. So let's, let's start there with Artemis and the worship of Artemis. Who's Artemis? How does Ephesus play into this? Give us
1: some background. Sure. Uh, We should say maybe about Paul first, correct me if I'm wrong, pastor, but, uh, We've skipped an awful lot of the story here, haven't we? Paul is here in Ephesus, I believe, for about 3 years. And we don't get the whole story. Have we missed some of that in the previous passages? Well, so he he was he came to Ephesus in
0: in chapter 19. He's been in Ephesus. The mention was made in verse 10 that he's going to continue for about 2 years. He's been in Ephesus for a while. We haven't heard too much about what's happened. In Ephesus, but we had the the mention of the twelve disciples and the baptism of John, the sons of Sceva. This is, you know, his third missionary journey, as you mentioned. We haven't heard too much traveling of Paul. Pretty much everything's happening here in Ephesus. But well, and I, I we think- see evidence
1: in the in the epistle too of of the great depth. I mean, he doesn't really stay in towns as long as he did here. That's correct. Yes, and I
0: think by when it's all. Over three years is the time that he spends in Ephesus. That's my understanding.
1: Yeah, I could be wrong here, but my impression is that this event happens closer to the end, that after this event, Paul doesn't really have a whole lot of standing or his ability to do ministry here has kind of dissipated. Uh, Is that your understanding too?
0: I I think so too. We're going to hear in the next chapter that after this uproar ceases, he's going to leave he will come back again and, and preach to the Ephesian elders. But but yeah, this is pretty much the toward the end of his time in Ephesus, it seems.
1: So I think that, I, I mean, I think there's a reason there's so many names and known people in the story. And, and that's probably something behind the, not, no, not a little disturbance is maybe it built up to this chaos and it wasn't sure. overnight. Uh, but yes, okay. So uh, Demetrius the silversmith is very concerned for Artemis or maybe also for something else too. Who is Artemis? And who is Ephesus or what is the city of Ephesus so you've heard of the seven wonders of the world right the pyramids are the oldest and uh, the hanging yes. gardens of Babylon and all that one of the seven at least by some people's counting is this uh, temple that is in Ephesus the temple that houses the, sh- the shrine and the statue of Artemis of the Ephesians uh, so it's very old. It's a very old site of pagan worship that goes well beyond the Greeks, uh, but in particular is uh, is observed by the Greeks, and they're the ones who give the name Artemis to this goddess that is there, uh, and it becomes connected with all the Greek mythology. Now, as we mentioned, we're into the Roman period, uh, but everybody is still speaking Greek and talking like Greeks, and and uh, and calling the world by its old Greek names, uh, and. They care about Artemis of the Ephesians. They don't talk about Diana, but that's the Roman name for this very same goddess. So in other words, to say this is a long-standing uh, place. this is a place steeped in rich tradition, not Christian or Jewish tradition, but pagan tradition. Uh, and it's it's famous.' It's, it's rich obviously. It's got silver makers, it's got a huge trade and and, they're, and this is multi-generational. Uh, and and uh, so one of the wonders of the world is in this town at the very time that Paul is. And that's why there's so much concern, right? And that's also maybe, uh, you know, not a little disturbance. It's, it's shocking to hear that Paul, of all people, uh, has now even gotten close to upsetting something so longstanding and traditional as Artemis. But it seems at least this one guy who who's the spokesman and causes this riot, he's concerned, <laughs> uh, which which is shocking. But but I think also instructive to us how the small thing of Christianity seemingly, uh, and the message of the gospel, actually is very. Destructive, very influential, very penetrating—that it can do so much damage in such little time to something as long-standing as this whole cult of Artemis here.
0: Mm. Is when Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica in the beginning of Acts, chapter seventeen, the complaint that was given there is that you know these are the men who have turned the world upside down, and it, it seems something like that is happening in Ephesus as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, sounds like hyperbole. Uh, the opposite of uh, understatement, but um, I, I think there's some kind of truth to it, too. So the evidence is that you know, within about four centuries, there is no longer a temple of Artemis. The seventh wonder of the world has been destroyed maybe by 400 AD, somewhere in there. Uh, that um, there are recordings of, of uh, maybe apocryphal tales, we're not sure, but of mass conversions away from... Uh, Artemis to Christianity. Shortly thereafter, there's at least one, uh, probably a false apocryphal gospel of John that says John the Bap- John the Apostle, the Evangelist, uh, who died in Ephesus, actually converted the whole place before he died. Uh, wow. Whether that happened or not, we're not sure. But we know that uh, Pliny, when he writes about Ephesus, is complaining that nobody worships the the local gods anymore. They're all out in the countries being Christians. What's going on? A- and wow. And again, that's, a, that's we have to recognize how astonishing that is since we're talking centuries. This is, in fact, I think the third or the fourth temple of Artemis. It burned down. It, it was destroyed by an arson, and that guy you know, was, was killed for it. Um, and, uh, and this last temple, by the way, very interesting. This last temple was built not by any one wealthy donor. Uh, not by taxes, not by slaves. It was funded entirely by the people of the city of Ephesus. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that then with, with Demetrius, the silversmith and his kind of whole guild getting together, this town council, this, this group of uh, respectable businessmen in their town, r- rising up and opposing Paul and the gospel. Because mm-hmm. they, this really is a patron saint, this Artemis, of their town. Um, This is this is not just the local team that is, you know, Comerica Park or 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 some, uh, you know, some businesses uh, or some wealthy man's expensive team. This is the one where they scrimped together, built their own stadium and are worshiping. So.
0: Mm. well and um, you mentioned stadiums and that's when you were talking about the the role that this temple played within Ephesus and even the ancient world and it's almost it's, it's very similar that's what my mind was going to is you know imagine that you're the football stadium there and we'll we use Austin Texas Royal K Memorial Stadium there in Austin Texas where the the Longhorns play where where everybody gets together and like nobody's coming to the football game anymore because they're all going to church we got to do something <laughs> about this uh, yeah. If I don't, if that's stepping on toes. Well, maybe we okay. have the opposite problem today, don't we? But, uh. That's right. Perhaps so. Perhaps so. I, I chose that on purpose. Pastor Densers, I imagine, imagine. I imagine. <laughs> so, so tell us about Demetrius then. He's, this is, I mean, that, that's good background. He's the one to stand up and give the speech that eventually leads to this riot. What, what's going on with Demetrius? What's he, what's he saying? Maybe what's he not saying or what's there in the words that we need to pay attention to? Uh.
1: So, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of a rhetorical speech we get to hear at length as argument, which is nice. Uh, and this is something the ancient world cares about too. Uh, and he kind of just appoints himself. You don't, we don't have the whole background on him. We don't know if he was already the guild's uh, chief or if he just kind of is the most eloquent of them. You know, but he gets up and makes a passionate speech. This is the kind of thing Paul's about to do in Miletus. This is the kind of thing Josephus does on the walls uh, you know, when the Romans are besieging the city. Uh, so, so it's very familiar in the ancient world. Uh, but his impassioned spe- speech has two things in mind. Uh, that, uh, they're going to lose their business and that they're going to lose the cult of Artemis altogether. And, uh, you know, I think we're very cynical and we probably think he's mostly in this for the money and he's worried about losing, uh, money. But there's there's plenty of competition. I mean, there are gods everywhere. Artemis is clearly ahead in this place, and and it's you're not going to unseat her very easily. And there's plenty of things to do. What he seems much more concerned about isn't that there might be another god in town. That's fine. Uh, you know, maybe maybe we can make statues of uh, this Jesus too. Uh, but he's worried that he's going to destroy the entire idea of idols. So in a sense, I actually think it's pretty theologically astute. Uh, And I do wonder if he's got a little bit of uh, the Old Testament in mind too, because uh, Ephesus is not only a place where the pagans are strong, it's actually a place where there's a pretty strong Jewish community. We hear that from Josephus. Uh, and we get to see a little bit of that interplay here with Alexander, right? The Jews are going to be blamed for this. The Jews want to stand up against this, maybe even to distinguish themselves from this Paul. He's not one of us, you know. Uh, uh, there's a little concern for tamping down the anti-Jewish sentiment from the town clerk, as well as, I suppose, just anti paul statement. In fact, I don't even know if he understands the Christian argument that well. Uh, but all to say, this notion that gods aren't, idols is the most astounding thing and this is something that is echoed you know both in the ancient world with the Jews but also in the New Testament against the Christians that we are the atheists because we don't have any tangible touchable visible put in your pocket or take home to your local shrine gods our God is, uh, is, is spirit and truth uh, and that doesn't sit well
0: hmm So I I will admit that I I tend to read Demetrius' speech with that economic view mostly in mind. I'm reminded a little bit of what happens in Philippi, where you've got those slave owners, Paul casts the demon out of their, their slave girl who was making them money, and they get... Paul and Silas thrown into prison, and and there it, it seems that it is more of an economic motivation than anything else. And I maybe I'm just importing that to Demetrius, but I, I appreciate what you're saying because it sounds like you're you're saying no, this is really a, a bigger issue that there actually there actually is a, a theological point that Demetrius is making. Maybe money's in the background, but the the
1: theological point is really what is driving him. I think maybe what I'm trying – I mean, I do think it's about money. I I do think that's kind of the most important thing for them. But I think it's it's just important for us to recognize they are not 21st century Americans. Their default religion is not pretend atheism like ours is. I think there's a way in which we always are functionally atheists. We don't act – or connect our our everyday life and our actions with our God or our religion or our beliefs. I don't think we act as if we expect to be raised from the dead and therefore we're immortal and and we shouldn't you know, worry about uh, those who can destroy the body. But that's exactly what Jesus tells us to do. Um, so, I mean, I think that's the kind of theology that this guy does have. So it's not just... I don't believe in these gods, but I'm happy to profit off them, and I'm concerned that my profit will be gone. I mean, I think I, I think he does believe that he's something great is going to be unseated, which you know, part of the greatness is my pocketbook as well.
0: Mm, yeah. So he I mean he's he's on to something here beyond just the economics, and that certainly does give us a uh, plenty to chew on, and we're gonna do that more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking X nineteen with Pastor Sean Denzer. We'll be right back. Back to Sharper Iron. It is June 16th. We're studying Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41, with Pastor Sean Denzer. He is director of worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and chaplain at the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Denzer, prior to the break, we were looking at Demetrius's speech. And I think particularly what we were talking about centers on the way that he speaks of what Paul is preaching there in Ephesus. He's turned away a great many people from Artemis by saying, this is the end of verse 26, that gods made with hands are not gods. Is that
1: that an accurate thing of what Paul's preaching? Uh, Yeah, and it it doesn't have to be Paul exclusively. This is definitely something that's taken up in the Psalter and a few other places in the prophets, too. It's one of my favorite little sections and easy to remember. You know, mouths have they, but they speak not. Ears have they, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. Hands have they, but they do not. Uh, And the people who make them are like unto them, which is a great little progression in the psalm and then the slam, right? That's what it is to make an idol, right? You cut the log in half, you burn and cook your meat with one of it, and you bow down and worship the other. That's really silly. (laughs) Uh, so, so that that kind of mockery of of physical gods has been in Israel's vocabulary for a long time, uh, but but Paul has renewed that argument very strongly. So, so there may be more to the story besides just the Christian doctrine. Is what I'm trying to say is to say mm, sure. this is maybe. We've heard the Jews say this, and we could tolerate that for a while because they don't know anything. But now we've got this other guy with a, uh, yet another religion that is attacking mm. even stronger against us, right?
0: Yeah, and he's taking away our business while he's at it. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Double whammy. It's
1: going I mean, it is. It's going to overturn all of life, especially when our whole city and world evolves around Artemis, right? And, yeah. uh, and look, not just us, all of Asia, all of the world worships her, right? You really are going to take on one of the wonders of the world? I, uh, we got to stop this.
0: Hmm, that's right. That's right. So you mentioned this is this certainly has its background in the Old Testament. Paul picks it up. What what Demetrius says there reminds me a little bit of the way Paul preached in Athens in chapter seventeen. You know, he he's in that city full of idols, and within maybe he doesn't phrase it quite this way, but within his his sermon there at the Areopagus, you certainly get the you get the impression that he's telling them. These gods that you got all around are vain things made by human hands. The true God isn't like that. Maybe that that sermon there in Acts 17 provides a little bit of background too. And I think we see this elsewhere in Paul's writings. This about the reality of idols and and they're not actually real.
1: Yes, and much like the psalm, I think it's important to realize, especially in that Mars Hill event, it's not a great syncretistic, uh, you know. Uh, universalistic appeal that Paul makes, right? It's totally fine, you know, you guys are doing some kind of religion, I respect that, you know. Uh even if we kind of disagree. No, it's I mean, you guys are very religious. You don't even know who you're worshipping. This is kind of insulting and and tongue in cheek. This is not a little insulting. <laughs>
0: That's right. That's right. So where else do we see Paul talk about this reality? Where else does he interact with this this idea about idols and gods as, as Demetrius brings it up?
1: Yeah. 1 Corinthians 8 is very similar, I think. So he's talking to Christians here, and he says concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, uh, and not, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something He does not yet know as he ought. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And what does he get to here? He says kind of this famous section. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. That's a quote from the Shema, the kind of creed of Israel, right? Behold, our God, our God is one. Although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, As indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are made and for whom we exist, one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are made and through whom we exist. However, not all have this knowledge. So the context, this is Paul saying, you know, just because we recognize that these idols are fake in and of themselves in reality— that means that the, the meat that's been offered to them sacrificially you know, is not really sanctified or owned by these gods. It, it has no special powers imbued by them because they're fake. Nevertheless, Christians ought to have some kind of a conscience and care, care about being seen and, and, and showing to others that it's no problem to go ahead and participate in these things because of the impression it gets. This is classically what we call syncretism if it's with pagans, unionism if it's with other heretical branches of Christianity. The idea that uh, I can take part in their sacred rites without any offense because I know the truth. And uh, and therefore, I know the difference in, and I can distinguish that in my own mind. Uh, and I will do that, of course. And therefore, it doesn't matter if I participate. Paul's point would be, hold on. Everyone else is going to watch this too, and they won't know what's going on in your head, and they may not understand the distinction, and they may draw just the wrong conclusion. So for instance, you know, I go to the temple today, and I eat the meat sacrifice to Artemis of the Ephesians, and uh, my neighbor says, well, I thought Christians weren't supposed to do that, but now I see it is okay to worship Artemis, because I saw Pastor Denzer do it, so I'm going to worship Artemis today too. You know that's not what I meant at all, but uh, but but now I've actually misled them and put a stone of stumbling in front of them. That's essentially Paul's argument.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So and again, we see that the gods made with hands are not, in fact, gods. This is what Demetrius gets at. I I don't remember how you put it earlier, Pastor Denzer. But with our with our context, and a lot of people claiming atheism when in fact they are not. How do I mean? How do we see this Christianity, the preaching of you know the Idols are not really gods. When people are saying, well, I don't believe in a God anyway, how do we still see this this reality at play today, do you think?
1: I think they're just, we're in a weird place. Uh, everybody is watching everybody's yeah. actions a- a- and ready to comment and pounce on them in a moment, right? This is just the way social media works. And quickly, on any issue, we have to line up on either side for or against, you know, on the right side of history, the wrong side of history, forgotten, which is... Pretty untenable. I mean, one, our judgments are not being made very carefully. We're not thinking them through. We're just leaping to conclusions and judging people, which Christians should know is wrong. But I think even you know noble pagans ought to understand the foolishness of that kind of an attitude. Uh, but. Uh, but we also do it with such certainty and and viciousness. Then to those who who take the other position, right? Um, so so I think there is something good about this, believe it or not. And, and the goodness is that we recognize our actions do matter. Other people are watching, and we can't just be totally indifferent to how they receive it. This is this phrase which comes into the the. Um, qualifications for being a pastor uh, or a servant of the church is that we're supposed to be somebody who's above reproach. That doesn't just mean somebody who didn't get caught for doing something wrong, somebody who, who didn't in truth or publicly do something wrong. It actually also includes like doesn't give the impression or isn't mistaken for the kind of person who did this bad thing um it's kind of like paul's take on sexual immorality flee it run it in the opposite direction don't ask the question of how close we can get without you know actually breaking the rule um so, you know, this leads to a – to a in our culture that has no understanding of forgiveness can lead to a very vicious, uh, unforgiving attitude where people are always tromping on people left and right. Um, and that part I don't think is good at all. Uh, but, but I think it can be helpful just to see at this point in time politics, which probably is the religion of our day. Politics is something people care about. They they know they're making a confession by their actions. Even something so mundane as where I shop or what stickers are on my car, uh, and so I'm going to take great care on that. You know, I'm going to confess, in other words, and I'm going to recognize my actions and my deeds and even the people I'm around and the people I support, they, they do make a confession. This is similar, though not obviously the same in content. This is similar to, to really what Paul gets at with making a confession in our lives too, uh, that, that we ought to be clear and, and we're, we're aiming for clarity and to help other people. Uh, we don't want to give a false witness uh, or a misleading witness to people. Uh, so, so we take care with what we do.
0: Mm. Uh, Paul, in his preaching there in Ephesus, has made this big of a splash. Demetrius makes his speech, and the reaction is pretty. It's pretty widespread. <laughs> That's probably putting it mildly. So the the title that the ESV gives this section is a riot in Ephesus, <laughs> and it, it does seem that that is what happens in in verse twenty eight. And it starts with this chant. That gets picked up over and over again for two hours straight. At one point, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, what what happens as after Demetrius's speech?
1: Uh, uh, yeah, so every you can see them all get riled up. You can see them. You can almost visualize this, right? The whole mob, uh, everybody. It's it's a scene of confusion as well as anger. People are not thinking with their brains, uh, at least not the the intellectual part of them. And uh, and they rush the stadium. They rush the theater. And this is a, a huge theater. I think it it may be the the largest actually in the Greek world. Uh, I think it seats like twenty five thousand people. So uh, we're getting ready for the national youth gathering here in Houston in July at Minute Maid Park. Uh, we won't quite have twenty five thousand, I think, but it could fit that many. So so they rush into Minute Maid Park, and uh, and they're chanting this thing. And I think it's it's all a very humorous scene, dangerous, of course, but but from our distance, humorous, right? They they grab these two guys who we know basically nothing about, Gaius. That's guy that's uh it's the like a super common roman name right and uh and aristarchus maybe we know who he is i think he gets mentioned later but it could be a different one right and they're Ma- they're macedonians they're from across the the channel and uh, they are Paul's companions but they're not even the guy himself and uh and they're, and they're dragged in and who knows what's going to happen a lynching just a public shaming you know you get the impression everyone's just kind of posturing themselves and shouting this great is artemis of the ephesians okay you know that's not really a list of demands or a way forward there's no solution to that problem uh, <laughs> it's just kind of standing on yeah this is who we are you know
0: right right but it is i mean it is a a volatile dangerous situation so so dangerous that paul wants to go and address people and maybe i don't know what he would have said but they won't. The, his friends and companions. They won't let him. You stay out of this, Paul.
1: Yeah, yeah, including the Asiarchs, uh, the 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 leaders of those people, um, the leader of the area. That means governmental people uh, there in Turkey's area around Ephesus. So, yeah, I, uh, hard to say. Some of them you think are, are Christians, uh, fellow disciples. Uh, are they timid? Does Paul have the right idea here? He's not afraid of death. Uh, for me to live as Jesus and to die as gain, so so he's not going to let this sway him. Uh, but, but it seems that he is persuaded. We don't hear anything about Paul going in. We cut straight to to the Jewish guy who doesn't really get an audience, and then the the town clerk comes in. So,
0: hmm. well, talk just talk a little bit about the riot that forms here and the confusion that's there. I mean, what's it's quite the scene. Uh, but what what's the point of, of what's going on
1: here? I, I just sinful human nature, I think it is so easy to get enraged. Uh, that's one of the, the easiest uh, emotions, I suppose to, to, to boil up in us. And, and there's a reason in the Bible I don't want to deny that there isn't some uh, godly righteousness to anger. We see Christ angry. We know that anger is a wrath is a characteristic of God. And yet, we have a lot more warnings about anger than we do encouragements to anger. In fact, the the few places where it does say that phrase, which I think is a Hebraism that doesn't come off very well in English, "be angry and do not sin," is immediately followed by right commune with your heart and become still. Uh, don't let your don't let the sun go down on your anger. Still, good advice for marriage. Um, this does not make for the righteousness of God. And yet everybody who's, who's deep in the passions of anger is angry because they know their cause is just. I mean, this is Artemis of our town, man. Uh, and this guy's trying to unseat her. That's, that's crazy. We've been here for generations, uh, way longer than the Greeks, way longer than the Egyptians. Maybe the Amazons founded this city. I mean, we, we got to stop this guy. That's, that's the kind of rage that has come in. Uh, Mm. so uh, just, I think every Christian ought to know they should be slow to speak, slow to anger, as James says, uh, Mm. and, and to a certain degree, just step back and look at how often we see this scene play out over and over again, how often we've seen it play out in the last 10 years, for example, uh, and how often it's turned out, well, maybe we didn't have the facts straight. Maybe I didn't know what was going on. Uh, I know these are the bad guys. These aren't uh, the people we'd want to imitate anyway, but uh, I mean, I think we can see something that we're tempted to in their actions as well.
0: Yeah, certainly. I mean, because the I think the rest of James there is that quick to listen, if you're going to be slow to speak, but quick to listen. I mean, certainly some of the crowd that has gathered here heard Demetrius's speech, maybe even a good number of them, but it, it, as the scene continues. I get the sense that not everybody knew what they were shout, why they were shouting great as Artemis of the Ephesians I mean for the sake of 2 hours that's a long time to be shouting one phrase I don't get the impression that absolutely everybody had heard Demetrius' speech, that eventually you've got people that are just shouting because everybody else is, and they really have no idea why. They're yes. just angry because everybody else is.
1: Yes, yes. I I think – and Luke is trying to bring this out in the story. Whether this is hyperbole or – you almost wonder if it exactly happened like that. I, I, I almost lean toward that. Like You could just imagine this – a ridiculous scene and people are yelling some people are probably drunk that just always seems to happen right and uh <laughs> and then you've got the kids joining in you know the town uh, fool just wanders out and of course he's going to join in why not that's the kind of scene we have here
0: yeah yeah and and one that takes quite some time to get under control this alexander who's of the jews he he tries to get control they don't want to listen to him because he's a jew any i mean is are, are, is he trying to distance the jews from the christians in this and they just don't want to listen to anybody any idea what how that plays into the account
1: yeah I, I mean i think all of it so so yeah the the jews would have a vested interest in saying this paul guy we don't know who he is you know he's not one of us let us live in peace uh, whereas I don't think that while there's was kind of an acceptance of the larger Jewish community there in Ephesus even so we know they're not really in favor of Artemis and uh so they're kind of you know what is this Alexander going to come join in and defend his buddy Paul uh <laughs> there's yeah. and 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 as happens so often why not just shout everybody down with something that can't really be argued with or discussed or considered at all <laughs> Uh, That's right. Yeah. So, so it is finally
0: in verse 35, the town clerk who is able to quiet the crowd with his speech and the rest of the the text really deals with what he says. How does the, well, I mean, I suppose it doesn't say how the town clerk actually quiets them, but what is his speech that eventually
1: disbands this mob? What does he have to say? Oh, the threat of bureaucracy always works, right? Yeah. Uh- <laughs> Uh, kind of, you know, so here's the Roman official, right? Comes in and gives a speech and at the end really says, you know, you can go and you could bring this to court or you could take it to the proconsuls, You could let charges be brought. It looks to me like there's about five different procedures he lays out. And you just imagine this getting bogged down more and more. Nothing will come of it anyway, uh, which sometimes can be a good political decision, I guess. Uh I kind of like his speech, though, because, again, I think you hear a little bit of that uh, not a little uh, kind of understatement going on here. And, you know, there's, there's kind of a Greek uh, oratorical uh, wisdom going on here in the way he, he addresses them. So, look, can it be even be questioned and doubted that Ephesus rocks? Right, that uh, we've got the best stadium in town in the whole world, and that everybody all around the world knows about Artemis. Like You can't even say the word Artemis without saying great. Artemis the Great, we all know her. And uh, interesting that we get this note about the sacred stone that fell from the sky in our translation. Um, yeah, there are some... Uh, well, I mean, this is one of the sources, actually, so we're not quite sure, but various legends on the origin of, of Artemis. We know that one of the oldest statues was made of wood and it burned up in a fire, but all the accoutrements that were around it were were found still, and some of them were included in the new statues and the new temples. Uh, and then there's this story that perhaps it was a meteorite that had fallen either as part of the metal they worked or perhaps it was uh, one of the decorations attached with Artemis. Uh, like I mentioned before, uh, at least one of the writers said that the Amazons uh, uh, founded the city. So so there's all sorts of legends even into the Middle Ages that still grow up around Artemis and and this whole cult, uh, which is, interesting even into the christian era the stories about this town last in a way everything this town clerk says is proven true even if her worship no longer continues mm. so well so about the town clerk and whether or not he's true or not there's there's one line in there that
0: i i wonder about and it's it's in verse 37 where where the town clerk says you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess yeah <laughs>
1: I would think that they were blasphemers of Artemis. Uh, so what what's he what's he doing there? I think he's downplaying it. I mean, I think you see this in uh, Pliny's letter to Trajan, right? What do I do with the Christians? This is the famous description we get of, uh, you know, they worship Christ uh, uh, as if he were God, and they sing hymns to him. That's important to me as the director of worship, that they recognize the Christians by that, Uh You know, but his general attitude toward this upstart religion is: let's really just try to leave them alone, as long as they do the civic duties and offer the incense to Caesar. We don't care what they say in private, right? And I think you see that kind of indifference here. Uh, He's trying to put the best in a way, put the best construction, the best pagan construction on this, and say, "Look, they're not out to destroy you. You know, whatever they say, that has no effect on this world." But I think, and this goes back to kind of the shrewdness of Demetrius, but also the kind of theological understanding that he has, even if it's ultimately put in service to his pocketbook, to recognize that what Paul says really does attack Artemis, really does attack the traditions and the sacred rites of this pagan temple, and really does blaspheme her. So so yeah, I actually think Demetrius is more correct uh, that i i think the town clerk is right that that uh, they probably will get through this event just fine and they can calm down uh, and but i think it's finally his threat of what will the romans do to us if we're found rioting that finally disperses them but uh, i i think this rhetorical piece here in verse 37 i don't think it's accurate i actually think demetrius was shrewder and he recognized that christianity while it doesn't go out to be violent it's not trying to take over the world in some kind of uh conspiratorial way the message that we bring really does fight against this world's fabric it says that uh those who lose their lives gain it for christ it says that uh, uh forgiveness is actually a fine way to treat things that go wrong to us uh it says that uh are, are all of the things that we trust in and hope in in this world are secondary to Christ Jesus and the most important thing is that he died and these are all just shocking and, and and incredibly undermining of the ways of the world
0: mm. yeah and, and then I think you're right then in that sense Demetrius is is he perceives better what's at stake than this town clerk. And, um, you know, the town clerk, just looking at what he says, it it certainly seems that his primary goal is to stop the riot and, and whatever he needs to say to do that, he's, he's willing to do. I see, I see within the town clerk's speech, maybe a, a slight hint of some of the the wisdom that Gamaliel had back in Acts chapter five, mm-hmm. where he he urged the Sanhedrin to, to kind of let God deal with this himself. You know, if, if the apostles are on the side of God, you're not going to be able to stop them. If they're not on the side of God, God will take care of them. It, from a pagan perspective, obviously, th- there's maybe a hint of that within the town clerk and the way he speaks about Artemis. Like, look, as you pointed out, like you can't say Artemis without saying she's great. She can take care of herself. Yeah. You guys just need to settle down.
1: Yeah, and um, well, I don't think it's in the nature of Christianity to be edgy or that it's necessary for us to do this, I do think the truth of the kind of radicals of Christianity is the recognition that it can't help but upset things. There's a reason Jesus always uses that word scandal, right? Uh, blessed are those who are not scandalized by me. Or uh, as Paul says later, right, the cross is foolishness. It's, it's scandalous to this world. And, uh, and that is true here. Whether it's upsetting, you know, the, it, it does actually impact the economic world and could threaten it in some small way. And it does actually impact the peace. Uh, you know, if people were to believe it, it's going to change the order. And it's not going to always value uh, going along to get along above all else uh, so you know there's a way in which i uh, ultimately i don't think christians are going to be threatening to society that's that's just not the attitude that christians take and it's not the approach our our our, our battle is not against flesh and blood but it is against spiritualities and powers and and forces of the air and, and that does mean ultimately uh that that we're strangers in this world and uh and we are somewhat of a threat to that. So so we can't, you know, in a way, I don't know how you can uh, you can dissuade the unbelieving authorities uh, entirely of the threat of Christianity.
0: Mm. Pastor Denzer, we, we have about a minute left here in the morning. Help us to wrap things up on Acts chapter 19 today, what we see happen in this riot and the good news that we see even in this text.
1: <laughs> it's a fascinating story. And uh, I mean, I do think you see chaos, you see confusion, you see greed. Uh, you see a, a desire to just keep everything as normal. Let's let's go back to the status quo. Uh, and you see these various factions arise to, to defend their chunk of this world. We're on the way, though. And uh, sometimes that way passes through this world and upsets it. Uh, but the reason we stick to it is because Christ Jesus uh, is far better than, uh, than Artemis. Our Lord Jesus Christ is has died and is risen. He is the one who created all things uh, and and he is the one who gives life by his own death. Uh, and that is a message that uh, that not only uh, can we can rally around, I suppose in the way you could rally around Artemis, but that is a message that comforts and forgives and brings something that this world in its craziness and its anger doesn't have. and that is actually a clean conscience through the blood of Jesus Christ.
0: Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Misery Synod and chaplain at the International Center in St. Louis, Missouri, helping us today with Acts chapter 19, verses 21 to 41. Pastor Denzer, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 19, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.